This morning, we're going to be talking about a man named Asher, a man that I call Average Asher. And the theme of this message is who you are today will impact generations to come. Now let that sink in. Who you are today will impact generations to come. But don't most of of us think of ourselves as only average? Peter Skillman, the author of a book called Five Star Mind, over the course of several months, conducted a study that was pitting the skills of elite university students against average kindergartners. Groups of four students in each group built structures, and they were given to use as construction 20 pieces of spaghetti. I'm assuming it was not cooked yet. One yard of tape, one yard of string, and one marshmallow. And the only rule was that the marshmallow had to end up on top. So these elite university students began by diagnosing the task, formulating a solution, and assigning roles. And the kindergartners, on the other hand, got right to work, trying and failing and trying again. And the following was written up as the outcome of that experiment. We presumed skilled individuals will combine to produce skilled performance. But this assumption was wrong. In dozens of trials, the kindergartners built structures that averaged 26 inches tall, and these elite university students built structures that averaged less than 10 inches tall. We see smart, experienced university students, and we find it difficult to imagine that they would combine to produce something inferior to the kindergartners. And then we look at unsophisticated, inexperienced, average kindergartners, and we find it difficult to imagine that they would combine to produce something greater than these elite university students. High IQs and years of education doesn't always produce better results. What mattered in this experiment was just getting to work and making adjustments and learning from what didn't work. Hidden away in one of the most tedious books in the Bible to read, among a myriad of difficult-to-pronounce names, is what I consider one of the most remarkable stories. It's the story of a man called Asher, and he was the eighth son of the patriarch Jacob. You may recall that Jacob had two wives, Leah and Rachel, and they were sisters. And Jacob had two wives because his future father-in-law had tricked him into marrying the sister that he didn't love simply because she was the older sister and was unmarried. Let me read to you from Genesis chapter 29, beginning at verse 16. Now Laban, that's the father-in-law, had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance, and Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. And Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. 
And Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. Now keep that in the back of your mind. That's going to be important. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. There's a surprise, right? And Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, it is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, talking about the honeymoon week. And we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. And Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter, Rachel, to be his wife. And Laban gave his female servant, Bilhah, to be to his daughter, Rachel, to be her servant. Again, keep that in mind. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban another seven years. So there are the seeds sown for a dysfunctional family. At different times when the sisters struggled with infertility, both of them gave their handmaids that I told you to pay attention to their names to Jacob as a way to show that they were the better wife. So let's continue on with this, picking up in uh, verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. Wow. She conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again, she conceived and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was called Levi, and she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. And she said to Jacob, Give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel, and he said, Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then she said, here is my servant Bilhah, go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her, and Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, with mighty wrestling, I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her, her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son. And Leah said, good fortune has come. So she called his name Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. And Leah said, happy am I. For women have called me happy. And so she called his name Asher. And that's where we're going to stop, even though there are more sons that are born. Now, would you just admit with me, this is one messed up family. So Asher is born from Leah, her servant's handmaid, Zilpah. In addition to his half-brothers, he had an older brother from the same mother who was named Gad. And again, when Asher was born, Leah said, happy am I, for women have called me happy. 
and she called his name Asher, because in the, the Hebrew language, that word means happy. But when you look at the way he started out, I'm really not sure how happy this man was. He wasn't born from Jacob's favorite wife. That was Rachel. He wasn't even born from the other wife, Leah, but from one of her handmaids. Asher didn't have the honor of being the oldest son. That was Reuben. He was not the most powerful son. That would prove to be Judah. He wasn't even the doted on son. That was Benjamin. And he wasn't the favorite son. That was Joseph. So Asher lived his early life in the shadows, learning to be content with the leftovers. And besides that, Asher grew up in one of history's most dysfunctional families. There's parental favoritism. There's sibling rivalry. There's deceit. And there's longstanding resentment. It's interesting that as you read the Bible, there really are no perfect families portrayed in there. There's hardly a single model family for any of us to look up to with awe and envy. Adam and Eve, no longer are they are sooner than they are out of the Garden of Eden, than one of their sons murders the other one. Noah's sons are forced to devise a strategy to hide their father's drunken shame. Jesse's sons, even though they were brave and loyal in service of their country, are cruel to their younger brother David. And David is a man after God's own heart. He's Israel's greatest king, but he can't even manage his own household. Even Jesus' earthly family, we see the same thing. In Mark chapter 3, Jesus is healing the sick, and he's fulfilling his call as the Messiah. And his mother and his brothers are outside trying to get him to come home, convinced he's crazy. Let me read to you two verses from Mark chapter 3. Beginning at verse 20, it says, Then Jesus went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when Jesus' family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. Great family support there, right? The Bible most often portrays the family not as some kind of a Norman Rockwell painting, beaming in gratitude around the Thanksgiving turkey, but as a series of broken relationships that are in need of redemption. But even that does not excuse what Asher and his brothers did. Asher participated in something in his younger days that was terribly wrong. He joined in on the selfish and hard-hearted scheme to have his younger half-brother Joseph thrown into a pit and then later sold as a slave to a traveling caravan headed for Egypt and then lied to their father saying that he had been killed by a wild animal. Then he would later watch his beloved father grieve that loss. The father, Jacob, thought his favorite son, Joseph, was dead. And Asher and his brothers let their father think that for decades. Years later, Asher was part of that group of brothers, uh, that delegation that went to Egypt to get food and were absolutely terrified to find out that Joseph was now the second in charge in the most powerful nation on earth. So Asher certainly didn't have the greatest start. Now, I'm not sure how it happened or when it happened, but somewhere along the line, something did begin to shift in Asher's life. Somehow he became a different man. We'll never know for sure what brought about this transformation, but what we do know for sure is that he left behind a legacy of wisdom and faith 
and character and service to his nation. A legacy that was not only attached to him, but also to his descendants. Now, how do I know this? First, we know that when Asher went to Egypt, he became the father of four sons, Imnah, Ishva, Ishvi, and Bariah. Now, Cindy and I considered those names for our sons, but then we later settled on Derek and Chad. We also know that he had a daughter, and her name was Sarah. That's spelled S-E-R-A-H. What's fascinating about this is that Sarah was the only granddaughter mentioned among 53 grandsons in the lineage of Jacob. And that's not because there weren't other granddaughters. It was customary in a patriarchal society to list only the sons. But for some reason, this one woman, Sarah, couldn't be left out. And although it's not recorded in the Bible, Jewish history says that she was a woman of great virtue and went on to have a tremendous impact during her lifetime. What's even more interesting is that Jewish rabbinical literature says that Sarah was actually Asher's stepdaughter. Asher had married a widow named Hadura when Sarah was three years old. So Asher was the father of what we would call a blended family. He welcomed Sarah into his home and raised her as his own. To be included in his lineage as the only granddaughter listed of Jacob, she must have held a very special place in his heart and lived an exemplary life. Not only was Asher the father of four sons and a daughter, but when his father Jacob was preparing to die, he brought each of his 12 sons to his bedside. This was the beginning of the 12 tribes. And one by one, Jacob gave each one of them a special last word. Now, I hesitate to call this a blessing because I'm going to read several of these to you, and I want you to judge for yourself what you think of these. The first one is for Reuben. This is from Genesis chapter 49, beginning at verse 3. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Sounds like a good start to a blessing, doesn't it? Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed and then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. So not a very special word there for Reuben. Then we see in the beginning in verse five through seven, Simeon and Levi. Simeon and Levi are brothers, weapons of violence as their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their, for their wrath, and it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. And then let me read to you one more. This is uh, about Issachar. And that begins in verse 14. Issachar is a strong donkey. Now, if you're going to be compared to an animal, a donkey is probably not the one you want to be compared to. Crouching between the sheepfolds, he saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant. So he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant of forced labor. But Jacob reserved for Asher a very unique word of blessing, saying in verse 20, Asher's food shall be rich and he shall yield royal delicacies. Now, we're not exactly sure what that means, but it probably points to some kind of abundance or prosperity. So let's now fast forward 400 years. 
Asher himself is long gone, but his descendants aren't. The tribe of Asher is still very much alive. The people of Israel are getting ready to go in and conquer the promised land. And Moses, who is their leader, is now preparing to die. But before he does, he's going to give his own blessing to each of the tribes. And he runs through the 11 tribes. And for some reason, he doesn't address them in the normal order that you would normally do this. But he waits until the end to speak of the tribe of Asher, which was actually eight out of 12. To the tribe of Asher, Moses says in Deuteronomy 33, 24, Most blessed of sons be Asher. Let him be the favorite of his brothers, and let him dip his foot in oil. Your bars shall be iron and bronze, and as your days, so shall your strength be. Now let's think about those words for a moment. This is quite an amazing thing to say about a man's legacy, especially a man who started as inauspiciously as Asher did. And it's a reminder to all of us that we simply can't measure the impact of our lives during our lives. We don't always get to see the legacy that we leave, and we can't always see the ch- how the choices we make today will impact further generations. Because here's a man who seemed very average. He's a man who was raised in one of the most dysfunctional families in the Bible. He's a man who made some very large mistakes early in his life that left some deep wounds in his family. And on top of that, he had the added challenge of raising a blended family while married to a woman who had lost her first husband. And most of us would take all of that and think that Asher wouldn't produce much of anything of lasting value. But look what Moses says about Asher's descendants. First, he says, most blessed of sons is Asher. That's one of those hard to translate Hebrew phrases as seen by the various ways that it's translated in different English Bibles. In the ESV that I read it from, it says, Most blessed of sons be Asher. But in the New American Standard, it says, More blessed than sons is Asher. And in the King James Version, it says, Let Asher be blessed with children. Now, one thing that we know is that blessedness was often measured in that culture by the number of your descendants. So that's probably what Moses was getting at. Later in the book of Numbers, we're told that not long after the Exodus, Asher's descendants multiplied to include more than 41,000 fighting men. Remember, that started with four sons and a stepdaughter. Later in Numbers, we learn that before the invasion of Canaan, so this is 40 years after that, the number had increased to 53,400 men, an increase of nearly 30%. And that's even more significant when you consider that the total number of Israel's fighting men, including all of the tribes, had actually decreased by some 2,000 fighting men. And yet this one tribe had increased by 12,400. So God promised Asher a posterity, and he delivered. This is something every parent desires and every parent should pray for. Not just that God would give us physical children, but that God would increase our spiritual posterity and that God, the Lord, would help us reproduce our faith in others. And you don't have to be a parent to reproduce your faith in other people. The second thing Moses says about Asher's descendants is this, let him be the favorite of his brothers. The word favored means to approve, to be pleased with, and to delight in. Asher would be loved by his brothers. And there would be that sweet unity 
between his tribe and the rest of the tribes of Israel. It's almost like God is saying he's going to be everybody's favorite. The Bible talks a lot about the blessing of having favor with others, but this is unusual, isn't it, for brothers? Research shows that up to 45%, nearly half of all adult relationships, are marked by rivalry or distance among siblings. In May 2012, the Wall Street Journal featured a story that was called Sibling Rivalry Grows Up. And it's about an 85-year-old man named Al Golden who still choked up when he talked about his twin brother, Elliot, who had died three years before this article was written. Al still remembered how his father often compared them and asked him one or the other, how come you got a, a B on, on this test and your brother got an A? Or why can't you swim as good as your brother? The brothers shared a room growing up. They graduated from the same college, and then they married within a month, month of each other. Their father actually wanted them to have a double wedding, but Al said, I shared every birthday and my bar mitzvah with my brother, and I'll be a monkey's uncle if I'm going to share my wedding with him. Okay, he didn't say a monkey's uncle, but this is a family-friendly service. Elliot became a lawyer and eventually a state Supreme Court judge. Al was a salesman who sold life insurance. Al says he always envied his brother's status and secretly took pleasure in knowing that at least he was the better fisherman and had a bigger boat. Then one day, Elliot accused Al of not doing enough to take care of their sick mother. And after that, Al didn't speak to his brother for more than a year. His brother repeatedly reached out to him, but Al ignored him. Then one day, Al received an email from his brother telling the story about two brothers who had a, st a stream dividing their property, and one brother hired a carpenter to build a fence along that stream, but the carpenter built a bridge by mistake. Al thought about that email, and he wrote back and said, I'd like to walk over that bridge. I believe Asher was that kind of a man. He was the kind of man to build a bridge rather than a fence. It reminds me of a verse in the book of Proverbs that says, When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. We should pray that we can walk in peace and have favor with those around us. It's inevitable that disagreements and disputes and times of animosity will come between us and our brothers or sisters, but our prayer should be that we shall be the first to seek reconciliation and be quick to forgive. Romans 12:18 says, If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And in Ephesians 4:32, it says, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. The third thing we see in Moses' blessing of Asher's descendants sounds kind of strange to us. It says, Let him dip his foot in oil. Oh, what does that mean? Of course, back then, washing your feet was a constant need in a dusty terrain. Now, that's what Bible teachers are always telling us, right? As if we don't wash our feet today. But I get it, sandals, dirt roads, walking everywhere instead of driving. But only the wealthy had the luxury of using olive oil to wash and soothe their feet. This makes sense for the tribe of Asher because when Joshua divided up the promised land between the 12 tribes, he gave the tribe of Asher a piece of land in the area of Galilee, where the soil was rich and olive trees flourished. The best olives in all of Palestine were raised 
where Asher's lot fell. It was even said of that area, it is easier to raise a legion of olives in Galilee than to bring up a child in Palestine. Even today, one tree will produce 15 gallons of olive oil in a season. So you can understand Moses' statement, let him dip his foot in oil. I can't help but think that every Christ-following person listening to this message today has dipped their feet in oil, meaning that we have received many blessings. More important than any material comforts that we may have are the spiritual blessings that we have received from God. I've been struck lately in reading the Bible how often the spiritual blessings we have are called riches in Christ. In Ephesians, we read of the riches of His grace and the unsearchable riches of Christ. In Romans, we read of the riches of His kindness and the riches of His glory. It's interesting, one of the greatest riches we have as believers is the Holy Spirit living in us. And many times in the Bible, oil is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God regenerated us when we were dead in our sins. And as we go out into the world, He is our comforter and our helper and our guide. He empowers us to be His witnesses and gives us spiritual gifts to build up the body of Christ. Every day, we should be dipping our feet in that oil. Without it, our souls become dry. The fourth thing that we see in Moses' blessing of Asher's descendants is, your bars shall be iron and bronze, and as your days, so shall your strength be. Now, these bars that are referred to are not the bars that you might see over somebody's window, but bars on a city gate. This is a promise of military strength and the ability to stand against their enemies. The land of Asher that uh, was inherited in the promised land is at the very northern tip of Israel. And so you can imagine if there were any uh, enemies that were coming south, they would have to hit Asher first. But they are promised that they would be given sufficient strength to stand against the enemies that would invade from the north. God, through Moses, is saying, Asher, you will be blessed with posterity, prosperity, but at the same time, your enemies will attack you. But you will withstand them because the bolts of your gates will be iron and bronze, and you will stand against the enemy's assaults. It's no surprise that some of Asher's descendants proved to be outstanding warriors in defending Israel. This legacy is found in the book of First Chronicles in chapter 7, verse 40, where it says, All of these men of Asher, heads of fathers' houses, approved, mighty warriors, chiefs of the princes, their number enrolled by genealogies for service in war was 26,000 men. Average Asher has a legacy that went far beyond what he ever imagined. Choice men, brave warriors, outstanding leaders. But that's not all. The last part of verse 25 said, As your days, so shall your strength be. Another translation says, Your strength will equal your days. Now let that promise sink in. We all know that we're going to be constantly under attack because we're told in 1 Peter 5, 8, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But what we learn here is that God will give us the strength to resist. Notice what it says. God's strength will come to you daily as you need it. We can fall into the trap of looking into the future and thinking, 
well, what if this happens or what if that happens to me? What if my wife got really sick or what if one of my children was killed? What if I got cancer or what if persecution came and the only choice I had was either to deny my faith or face death? I can't imagine how I would respond to any of those situations. But look what this verse says. Your strength will equal your days. You don't get the strength from God for tomorrow's trials. You get it for today's trials. Corey Ten Boom used to tell of a conversation that took place between herself and her father when she was a little girl. Daddy, she said one day, I'm afraid I will never be strong enough to be a martyr for Jesus Christ. Her father wisely responded, tell me, when you take a train trip from Harlem to Amsterdam, when do I give you the money for the ticket? Three weeks before? No, Daddy, you give me the money for the ticket just before we get on the train. That's right, he replied, and so it is with God's strength. Our wise Father in heaven knows when you're going to need things too. Today, you don't need the strength to be a martyr, but as soon as you're called upon for the honor of facing death for Jesus, he will supply the strength you need just in time. Many years later, Corey said, I took great comfort in my father's advice. Later, I had to suffer for Jesus in a Nazi concentration camp. He indeed gave me all the courage and power that I needed. Moses is saying to the descendants of Asher, and I believe to us as well, yes, you will face challenges from the enemy. Yes, you will face hardship and grief and sickness and persecution. None of us are exempt from trouble in this life. But don't worry about tomorrow, because as your days, so shall your strength be. Here is a man who seemed to be very average. He is a man raised in a dysfunctional family. Here is a man who sold his own brother into slavery and then lied to his father for decades to cover it up. Here is a father of five in what very likely was a blended family. No kings or judges or priests came from his lineage. Here is a very average man who you would think wouldn't produce much of anything that was lasting. But here is a man who left a legacy that was greatly blessed, a legacy of abundant posterity, a legacy of favor with his brothers, a legacy of his feet dipped in oil, a legacy of strength to withstand the enemy. Can I share one more thing with you? Soon after Jesus was born, his earthly parents brought him in into the temple to present him to the Lord, and there they met an old woman named Anna. Listen to what's written in Luke chapter 2, verse, beginning at verse 36. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Israel. What a legacy. Average Asher was the ancestor of a wise old widow who recognized that this baby would bring redemption and salvation to Jerusalem and to the whole world. You may have been raised in a very dysfunctional family. You may have made some mistakes in your life that caused unnecessary pain for others, 
which you deeply regret. You may not have the picture-perfect family from a Norman Rockwell painting. You may never have a president or a millionaire or a superstar athlete in your family line. But who you are today will impact generations to come. You may not get to see much of the legacy you leave. You may not see how the choices you make today will impact your children and your children's children and even their children, but they will. You simply can't measure the impact of your life at any point during your life. So take heart and live your life as if every choice is a personal investment that will pay dividends down the road. Let's pray. This morning, Lord, we are encouraged by the story of this man that you chose to place in the Bible. Seemingly a very average man. Somebody that we wouldn't look to and say, oh, great things are going to come from him. And yet that's somebody that we can identify with because we view ourselves that way. And yet we see how you blessed him and blessed future generations through him. And so, God, we ask that you would do the same for us. Whether we are parents or not, we can have an impact on future generations. And we ask that you would help us to do that one person at a time. And, Father, even as we give our offerings to you as we leave today, we ask that you would use those gifts to reach other people. Just that average gift that we can give would be used in a great and mighty way. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.